Hey friends, welcome to Life Together Unscripted. This podcast is for those of us who are just a bit tired of everything that looks so polished and schmick in the world. Production that's squeaky clean that you know has been practiced a million times. So we are hopeful that you enjoy the unedited and unscripted nature of this show. We can promise you that this episode you're listening to today uh, was unplanned on the front end and unedited and untouched on the back end. So we hope you enjoy this episode. This is Life Together Unscripted. Hello there, Erica. Hey. How are you doing? Doing good. How are you? Yeah, doing well, thanks. We are at the Barney's Admin today. Yeah, I should change that. Give me a sec. Oh, that's quite all right. I was more curious to know, um, yeah, what is the day job these days? Uh, the day job is Senior Assistant Minister at St. Barnabas Anglican Church Broadway. <laughs> okay. Um, and that involves overseeing a bunch of different ministries. So running, helping with the exec team, doing oversight of the whole church, vision, strategy, um, mission, etc. And then um, alongside that, looking after our women's ministry, young adults ministry, traineeship ministry, pastoral care, um, wow. coaching of leaders and our mission strategy. So you have a couple things in your portfolio, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> where is, um, yeah, yeah, man, that sounds like such a big load to carry. Um, where do you think is your sweet spot in the midst of all those areas? Where do you excel and where do you flourish and where do you find joy? And are those things united? I would have said exec um, up until about a year ago before COVID really got us. Um, exec is the place that I come out I go into buzzing, I come out of buzzing just because I'm a big picture person. I love thinking about where we're going and why and how and um, sketching out a vision for that and then seeing that come to fruition. But for the past year, exec has been um, almost the opposite of that (laughs) because every week we've had to change something in response to COVID regulations or new things that are happening there. So um, I'm looking forward to at some point getting back into that space and doing the, the forward casting of things rather than just the week by week changing chair, you know, <laughs> changing no thing. <laughs> yeah. I, in my um, experience of that, we just went back into a five day, five day snap. I think it's what, it, what it's called. And um, we're just, you know, uh, locked down for five days. And this is the second day of it. And I'm just having a hard time getting going, like getting the wheels churning. It's that um, lack of structure and that kind of recalibrating to the chaos. Um, and then how do you do life? How do you do life with children? How do you, what's the day job again? And um, mm. kind of getting back in that. But I guess I'd be interested to know, um, yeah, what's your feel as you reflect on the last year as it relates to COVID and, and kind of some of the things that the church has been experiencing um, up where you're at, how have you, yeah, sought to reconcile the wins and the losses and, and you know, that that turbulent footing and, and all of that. Yeah, we've just done a process with the whole staff team where we um, reflected on that, evaluated that, and then set different goals for the year based on that. So we asked everyone to think about what were your original plans? How did COVID change that? Where have you seen unexpected wins with that? Where have you seen difficulties and what can we do to be realistic about what we're aiming for this year on that basis and I think for me it's been um it has been a really frustrating and and tough year although obviously we recognize that we've had a much 
um, easier ride of things than lots of other places have. But for me, the encouragement has been um, when I did that reflection last year to try and help me keep on track with things, um, I remembered that about 18 months ago we prayed as a staff team for certain discipleship priorities for our church. Um, we prayed that people would be hospitable in their homes and that they would lower the expectations of what that looks like and not be perfectionistic about it. And we prayed for people to recognise mission opportunities in their geographical areas and we prayed for people to have a new energy for that and to see like urgency with it and um we prayed for people to have entrepreneurial spirits and to be willing to like take risks for the gospel and trying new things um all of those sorts of things and then I had like ministry strategies and plans uh for how we were going to do that how we're going to train people and encourage people and make all of that happen and COVID ruined all of those plans. But at the same time, when I reflected on what I'd seen God do over the past year in terms of discipleship in our church, it was every single one of those things totally differently from how we'd planned them. Um, (laughs) But so encouraging to recognize that. Yeah. And God's faithfulness too, in the midst of it. Hey, it's a good thing we write things down because we're like Israel, like, man, we'll just forget, you know, our face in the mirror or, you know, any of that the next day. So um, really good to reflect on that. That's so cool. Yeah. Um, I guess, uh, yeah, I'd be keen to hear um, the last time we would have spoken would have been a couple of years now. And you uh, were the resident expert, I suppose, uh, in the area of domestic violence. Um, And we we did an interview with you and I'd be keen to explore uh, some of that. I'd be also keen to explore some of the um, issues and challenges um, that you potentially um, experience now or have experienced in the past as it relates to just being a woman in ministry. Um, This second season, we are doing uh, an all female uh, cast, I guess you'd say. I don't, I'm, cool. I'm losing words, um, but some of my interest and involvement, like, look, I am, um, I'm a man, obviously, and so there are gaps in my areas of understanding, experience, and and I'm just interested to hear um, from yourself and, and a bunch of other women um, in their careers, professions, and learn more myself, and hopefully it will then be a byproduct and, and a benefit and blessing to others listening. Oh, so, amazing. yeah, That's so great. I guess yeah, if um if we can step into the area of um, the last time I saw you, I suppose, um, why were we interviewing you at that time? Um, I was just the lackey on the production crew, and so uh, I, I was probably less invested in terms of the content. Um, and so curious to know, um, yeah, where did you stand in those years? How has that evolved, maybe? Um, yeah, so originally we came into contact because I have been the the head of and now the spokesperson for Common Grace's domestic and family violence justice team. Um, so Common Grace is a non-denominational movement of Christians who believe in Jesus and justice is kind of the, the tagline. And then within that, there are different subgroups that focus on specific areas. And the one that I was helping to oversee was the domestic and family violence one which I'm still involved in now, but um, more as a spokesperson. Um, And so we were just talking about how that issue is not just affecting us in broader society, but also within the church and what it looks like to have a a faithful and hope-filled Christian response to that. Um, So that's where things were a few years ago. That's still where things are for me now. Like that's still my passion and it's still something that I'm working on um, in my own context and also with other denominations and um, different states to help try and resource churches for that and Christians. I love that. I love it's um, interdenominational as well. But can we back up a little bit further than that and just get into the what got you through the doors there? Um, What was uh, the 
Um, did you approach them? Did they approach you? And, and maybe some of the origin and um, how that came about. Yeah, so um, when I moved, so I, I'm, a, I'm a Melbourne person originally, <laughs> um, but when I moved up to Sydney, I wanted to make friends. And um, a good friend of mine, Jo Knight, who um, is a Melbourne woman, um, knew some of the founding members of Common Grace. She was on the board. I think she might still be. Um, and she just said, look, apart from anything else, it would be great for you to know these people because they have the same values as you. Um, but maybe there are also projects that you can work on together. And so I met with them and I have a law background. I, I did that as my undergrad and um, spent some time researching domestic and family violence within a law context. Um, and so when I met to talk with some of the founders of Common Grace about the areas of interest that they had, um, they had people who were already kind of setting up some of the other teams, uh, refugee and asylum seeker ministry um, climate change ministry, those sorts of things. They didn't have anything for domestic and family violence. And at, at that stage, I think we were just on the cusp of it becoming a national conversation. Um, and so I just said, look, that's something that I'm really passionate about. Um, I'm not an expert at this stage, but I would love to try and kick us off in that direction. Um, yeah, so good. That was how it started, really. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, man, so many things come to mind, the law background, the uh, gospel implications. I'd love to hear what are some of your thoughts as it relates to um, just the legal side of uh, domestic violence and, and how the courts and how we look at it from just the secular side of things. And then I'd love to go to the Jesus side as well and maybe the overlap and talking a little bit about that. Um, but what did you learn in those early days of law? Uh, what are some of those things that have carried through or just something that we may not know about as it relates to um, the legal practice and process, um, good or bad? Mm. Oh, there's so many things I could try and cover there, but... Um... I guess one of the things that really shocked me when I studied law, and this was just, this is a comment about law in general, it's not specific to domestic and family violence. Law is an, is an approximation of justice. It's not a perfect justice system. It's the best thing that we have um, to approximate fairness and to approximate justice and, and even to kind of provide in some way a healing for wrongs that have been done. Um, but that means it'll always fall down in some way. Um, it's never going to be a perfect way of bringing those things about. And that's definitely true in regards to domestic and family violence. Um, in part, that's because some things are actually not legally actionable. Some things that happen to you that are still morally wrong um, and still enormously significant um, have no laws attached to them. Um, that's changing now. Uh, Australia and the UK uh, are now considering coercive control laws to make that illegal. I think it already is illegal now in the UK. It's, that was just announced earlier this year. Can I um, stop you right there, Erica, real quick, just for myself and anyone else listening? Yeah. What is uh, what is that? What do you mean when you say that? Coercive. So coercive control. Yep. So when you when you think about domestic and family violence, you're thinking about an umbrella term that has lots of subcategories attached to them, um, and the most obvious one, or the one that people probably think about the most, is physical violence. Uh, physical abuse, but um, a significant amount of abuse happens in other categories like spiritual abuse, like financial abuse, like cyber stalking or online abuse, mm. um, verbal abuse, a whole range of other things. Coercive control is a way of um, capturing some of those other things and in particular to express that at the heart of domestic and family violence is 
um, the abuse of power in order to control another person. So coercive control is about um, maybe using someone's access to their social network and um, maybe access to vulnerable things that they've done online um, to manage them, to limit them, to control them um, according to the abuser's own will. Yeah. Um, so a lot of that stuff doesn't fall under other legal categories. Hmm. So, for example, stalking is stalking is a crime that could be taken to the court, uh, but there are other ways that you can follow someone, um, manipulate them, use their social circles that hmm. uh, before coercive control was a law wouldn't have actioned any legal responses. It would just be something that a woman or person who's being victimised in that way would just have to try and deal with the best way that they could. So there's been an argument for a long time amongst advocates in the domestic and family violence sphere, sphere that we need something that makes that actionable because the consequences of that are significant enough and harmful enough that there needs to be some sort of um, recompense for that. Yeah, I would, I would imagine... Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but like in one sense, the physical aspect of abuse is measurable and it's kind of a, it, it would seem more black and white in a, a court of law, but this area of coercion or this area of control or manipulation is potentially a bit intangible or even has the, um, uh, it, there is a big uh, sphere of where that could be considered manipulation or control. And so um, yeah. my, yeah, that I would assume that that would be incredible to have as something that is then um, yeah, actioned and, and carried forward. Um, mm. Where do you see um, as it relates to, no, I want to go the Jesus route on that. So we've heard a little bit about that, but so you said law is um, and, and can fall down in areas of justice and things like that. Where do you think that, the church speaks into that, those gaps, or do you see the church speaking into those gaps or where can the church invest in areas of those gaps that potentially fall through the cracks in uh, the legal system? Uh, there, are, there are lots of ways. I think one of the ways is just by recognising that churches are always intending to minister to a whole person um, in all of life, um, that the message that we have from Jesus isn't a Sunday-only message and it's not a, a heart or a brain-only message. It's a whole person message that speaks fullness of good news um, to all those who would come to him. Um, and so what that means is that if we are wanting to minister to people and we're wanting to disciple them, then we're going to have to have something that that says something about the abuse that they're experiencing Um and says something to the people who are abusing them as well um, that tells them not only that if there is a lack of um, language or legislation around the things that they've experienced, there is no lack in God's vocabulary. Mm. God knows exactly what they're experiencing and he's able to call it wrong and that's far more authoritative than um, even what a court is able to um, dictate or what a government is able to legislate. So even if there is that gap there, there's no gap for God. He knows. He understands and he's going to call that to account and it'd be better to be called to account now than before you face him um, in your final day. Um, so I think that's part of it, that it actually gives a language and, and a, a recognition of the seriousness um, and something authoritative for a victim um, or for their advocate to really hold on to if that's something that they're experiencing. 
Um, and that the gospel provides us with resources for healing when you're experiencing that or if you've come out of that, um, to, to know that Jesus is not just a saviour um, who deals with your sins but a brother who loves you and walks alongside you, who calls you a friend and invites you in to be vulnerable but in a safe way um, and that he does that in the context of a family that should be offering all of the kinds of stability and safety and safeguards um, that I think God intends for us. So I think there's a lot, there's so much that yeah. <laughs> churches can do, uh, so much. But that's sort of it. That's the tip of the iceberg, I guess, for now. Yeah, I love that. That's so good. Um, I was reflecting on, and I'm not exactly sure the words that you said, but uh, what came to mind was the notion of hurt people hurt people. Um, so I have, um, you know, I, I come from a sin background and, and all kinds of things. And also through the church at some point in time, I was uh, administering different pastoral care. And I did notice um, there was an interesting way of leading people because as people are hurt, uh, unfortunately, there's a byproduct of continuing patterns or cycles of hurt. There can be. I'm not saying that's a tit for tat. It happens black and white every time. Um, but that's been some of my experience. And I was curious to know in your sphere, has there been any reality in that? Have you sought, um, have you been any wisdom or gleaning from extra measures of grace for those who are hurt um, in, in your space and capacity? Where have you, um, yeah, sought to, I guess, minister well um, to people who have been abused or? Um, well, that's a big question. Um, in, I guess in regards to that last aspect, how, how to minister well to people who've been abused, I think the biggest thing for me has been to give people space and to allow them to go at their own pace. That wasn't intended to rhyme, but if that helps people <laughs> remember it, then that's a good yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, one of the really difficult things about pastoral care in this context is that um, I think any of us who are convicted by um, a sense of just how significant the wrong is that's been done to a victim uh, or a person who's experienced abuse. Sometimes that comes with an urgency and an intensity that actually feels really similar to the dynamics of abuse and it can kind of feel a bit coercive or um, like someone's asserting some power or dominance over you. So huh. if you're a pastoral carer and you're hearing these horrible things and you know someone's in danger or um, you just want to see automatic change happen for them, um, but that can actually be really unhelpful for someone. So to give them actual to space and some agency to say, where do you want to start with this? What, what do you recognise as your deepest need right now? What do you need to hear from God um, and to allow their answer to be different from the one that you might supply for them um, and their timeline to be different from the one that you feel like you would pursue if you were in their same, the same boat. Um, to give someone their agency back and or to be a kind of a channel of that coming back to them is enormously healing in and of itself. Um, and so to have the kind of patience and grace to allow someone to work that out alongside you, I think is a really significant starting point. There are lots of other things that you might say about that, but I think that's one of them. Love um, that so much. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. No, keep going. Sorry, oh, just me. in terms of the kind of hurt people hurt people mm. is true, but I'd be really careful about how I use that in regards to abuse because um, the reality is in a broken world, all of us are hurt. All yeah. of us have been hurt. 
all of us have been hurt in significant ways. Not all of us choose to respond to that by abusing other people. And um, I know that's not how you use that phrase, but um, I'm conscious of the fact that an abuser can hear that and use that as their excuse. And so I want to counter that by saying, actually, all hurt people can be healed by Jesus. And that's what we do with our hurt. Um, That's the option that we get given by him. So let's do that instead. Um, let's be places where that's the first port of call. That's that's where we say that's where grace is shown to you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that course correction. That was really helpful. <laughs> One, no, it's true. Um, there are um, cliches or paradigms or things like that, and they just can be unhelpful. Um, and so in, in saying that, I appreciate you pulling me up on that. Um, I, I was interested to hear, um, and I think it's so helpful that you said, we have often, we come to care with an agenda or a let's fix it by tomorrow or a, and the patience and grace to understand that God is working in his sovereign timeline of people's mm-hmm. sanctification. That's some, There's something so beautiful and wonderful about that. But the thing that struck me and I really thought it was interesting was you said that can feel like a, um, uh, a means of control or means of coercion or a means of, you know, manipulating a situation to get that kind of healing. And what interestingly, like it just, triggered my mind was, wow, you probably got a bunch of male pastors as well. And I don't mean to make this a gender thing uh, at all, but I was wondering, what is that dynamic like for a woman in the church to then um, receive counsel, to sit under, to what are some of the complications that you've seen? Have you been, um, you know, a third partner in the room? Maybe just walk me through some of that. Yeah, again, so many things I could say about that, but um, (laughs) it's it's a double-edged sword uh, that most of us are probably in churches where the majority of the pastoral staff are going to be men. Um, one of the beautiful things about that is that if if the male pastor handles that responsibility well, that can be enormously healing because um, it is relevant that he is a man <laughs> um, and that most of the people who've experienced violence are going to be women. Um, it can feel healing and redemptive to be treated well by a man after you've been treated really badly by one. Uh, That sounds really simple, but it's not. Um, And I've sat in the room when I've seen a couple of my male colleagues counsel women and I know the difference it makes for my male colleague to say the same sort of thing that maybe I would say. I know that it it touches a different spot or it it goes more deep in some ways um, for the women that... um, who hear it so there's something really beautiful about that and it's a it's a power that can be used so well um but at the same time what that requires is enormous sensitivity enormous um learning a willingness to learn from the person you're seeking to counsel yourself um and I think there are ways in which our culture predisposes men against being able to do that (laughs) um so particularly male ministers tend to be looked at as the people who know things and who are there to teach, not who are there to learn. But to be a disciple is to be a learner first. So if our ministers are chief disciples, that means that they should first be chief learners, um, learners from Jesus first and foremost, obviously. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's where I see that turning point. If if a if a male minister is willing to recognise the gaps in their their knowledge and their understanding, and take the time and and again express that patience to hear from the woman and let her um, regain some of her agency, that's where the gold is. That's where it's powerful. 
but I have also observed, unfortunately, and heard lots of stories of women whose male ministers did not do that, who thought that they were experts because they're experts in other areas of theology and pastoral care, um, and unfortunately did more damage than good in the way that they sought to care. And so that's partly why, you know, the first part is to learn, but it's also, I think, uh, partly why it's important for us to have women who are deeply involved, strategically and meaningfully involved in leadership, whether that's in a formal way or if it's in an informal way. And I know from many women that if they didn't have access to that, they would not have anyone that they felt that they could talk to or bring up their abuse issues with. Um, so that that's a structural issue that does need to be addressed in lots of churches. Too few churches have enough avenues for women to raise issues like that with them. Yeah. Well, I had another question, but that uh, uh, that skips the queue because, um, oh, okay. <laughs> like, I, like, look, let's talk about what's important. That's absolutely important. If a woman is experiencing some form of abuse or even is questioning, is this abuse or not? What do you think the, are those appropriate um, protocols? Like, where? What does a healthy church do? What sh- what could it or should it look like? Is it, you know, going through your uh, small group or life group? Is it going to straight to a pastor? What What are some of the things that you've seen that have worked or haven't worked? And you don't need to name names, but I'm I'm curious to know what are some of those systems look like. Yeah, a healthy church provides many channels because someone some women will need many options. Um, And that's partly because if they're experiencing abuse in a church context, that means that there are likely people who have um, multiple points of intersection with the person who's abusing them as well. Um, And so if the person who's abusing them is a Bible study leader, for example, they need someone other than a Bible study leader to go to and talk about that. Or if it's their husband and their husband is well connected, um, they need a safe channel apart apart from his connections to be able to do that. Um, And often abusers are really good at grooming the leadership of the church in order to be on side with them and trust them already. And so if there's only one option of of one pastoral carer and that pastoral carer has been groomed by their abuser, that's going to limit their resources. That's why it's good that within the Anglican church, at least, and I know other denominations have other resources, there are outside bodies that provide access to that kind of thing. So the Professional Standards Unit in Sydney is an independent body that's funded by the Anglican Church. That means that if there isn't anyone in your church that you could talk to, you could still find access. But on a local church uh, level, I think there are a few things. I think about it as creating disclosure safe cultures. And that means a few things. It means um, people knowing that their leadership know that abuse is a thing that happens, which I know sounds so simple, but actually a lot of the time we communicate about stuff in a way that suggests that we don't think that it's even a possibility that abuse could happen in a Christian context. And so when we talk about Christmas, we'll name all of the things that we enjoy about being with family and we won't name the fact that Christmas Day is the day that the highest number of call-outs go to police because of domestic violence incidents, for example. And so already in the way that we're talking about key events in the life of a Christian community, we're naming one thing as likely and one thing one thing is invisible. So if we can name some of those things, I think what it does is it creates a culture that says, oh, people believe that this happens, so they might believe that it's happened to me. So if people can name that from the front but also in their conversations, if they can say, I've been reading this article and 
I'm just so sad that this is happening and it's made me wonder if it's happening in our church. Even to say that I think is just a crack open of a door for a victim or someone experiencing abuse that says, oh, I might be able to walk through that door. That person has an openness to hearing my story that I haven't, that I maybe haven't observed in someone else. So I think I think those are kind of the, the, the starting points to name that we know that it's possible um, and then to say and that we are prepared to learn more, that we have a, we have a kind of an attitude or a posture um, that acknowledges that we won't know everything about a scenario but that we're willing to know, we're willing to hear, we're willing to ask curious questions and we're willing to be led by the person who's telling us that story. Um, so part of that comes down to naming the sort of training that you're receiving or the sorts of articles that you're reading about those sorts of things. I think all of those things communicate safety to someone if they're trying to work that out. Um, part of how you can do that is not just from your leadership but mid-tier level pastoral care. And I think that's particularly significant in a church that is large enough that it requires mid-tier pastoral care. Um, so a church of my size or your size um, definitely does. We rely on people who are um, city group leaders or growth group leaders, those sorts of people. Um, and usually what that means is that those people need to be trained. Like you can't just say, hey, expect this to happen and then throw them out there. They'll feel completely overwhelmed by that and really stressed out and no one will be served well by it. But if they can be well trained to understand the dynamics of abuse, to look for the signs of it, to recognise how it shows up in a spiritual context, and then to be given a little bit of preparation about what it looks like to handle the disclosure, those things all really, really help. Yeah, no, it's so good. I remember um, <clears throat> as part of my training, I had to go through a um, suicide uh, awareness and, um, mm. you know, protocol of, of what you do when someone's su uh, suicidality, suicidal tendencies, sorry, excuse me. Um, but as a lay person in that it was everything that was counterintuitive. Like I want to go away from this as opposed to actually going straight yeah. into it. And, um, and so that was a really helpful workshop. I'd be curious to know, um, does common grace or are there any um, areas of training or areas of uh, things that you would point myself or other people to in the church that would be uh, helpful areas of awareness? Yeah. So common grace, uh, we produced a resource called safer resource. So it's savearesource.org.au, uh, which was our attempt to be a fairly comprehensive approach from, from early warning signs to disclosure to follow-up. Um, if you're a survivor of abuse or someone supporting them, it's attempted to uh, give you at least an overview of all of those things and then provide you with resources to follow that up. Um, there's a specific page on that that looks at training resources that are that's available and the different um, resources available for different states and den denominations and those sorts of things. Um, I know that the Anglican um, Church in Melbourne has done an excellent job with this. I've worked quite closely with Robin, who's been overseeing um, the program there, and I know that they run a bunch of excellent training and we've got similar stuff in, in Sydney. Um, but lots of denominations have now produced handbooks and guides and training materials for their churches because they recognise that it's an issue of such importance. That's good. Um, you used a couple terms that to me probably have some level of um, fluidity or flexibility in that um, you used agency and grooming. And I'd yeah. love to know how do you articulate those things? I think in my brain, I'm like, oh, I understand what she's saying, but actually I'd love to hear 
kind of what you mean when you say those terms. Yeah, with agency, it's about allowing your will to be the thing that is considered significant and that actually um, is meaningful in a, in a space. So, for example, I've been in a space where someone looked like they were trying to tell me that they were being abused and um, one way of cutting against that agency would be to say, you're trying to tell me something, what are you, what are you trying to tell me? Uh, which is kind of an anxious response from me, um, which is a fairly natural one. That's yeah. how you feel if you thought someone was trying to disclose to you. But a, an, a response that provides a bit of agency is to say, um, is there a place you'd like to start? It sounds like you're trying to tell me something and it looks like that's difficult for you. Is there a place that you definitely don't want to start and a place that you would like to start? Would it help you if I ask you questions? Even just, that is a question in itself, but even to ask that question is to say, what do you want? Can we tune into your body, to your spirit, <laughs> to what you're feeling, and let's be led by that? Would you like to pause and come back to this? Is now the time that you'd like to talk about it? I'm happy to wait if that's something that you need. So there's been many times actually where I've just sat on a bench with someone and we have sat in silence for 15 minutes just so that they had enough time to compose themselves and work out their answer to any one of those questions I've just asked. It requires enormous patience, um, well, particularly for someone who's not very patient like me. But that's that's the only kind of thing that allows a woman to, to work out and to tune into something that's actually been um, by necessity, a function she's had to turn off. She's had to turn off awareness of her own needs, awareness of her body, awareness of whether or not she feels safe. So even just to ask a question, what would make you feel safe right now is an agency um, allowing question <laughs> that turns that switch back on for her or allows the possibility of it at least. So good. And then you use grooming as, um, and, and the way in which I heard it, which was really interesting, was uh, potentially um, manipulating another person outside of the relationship to, I'm assuming, kind of keep that under wraps, or, or but I'd also like to hear how you bring that to life. Yeah, you've given a good articulation of it, but it's, um, it's probably worth saying that if abuse is happening, grooming of other people is most likely happening, particularly in a church community, because the only way in a church community that has some level of um, intersection with each other's life and access to each other's lives and um, close-knit uh, relationships, the only way an abuser gets by in that is by um, shaping the attitudes and expectations and perspectives of the people around them so that they're not able to see or understand what's really going on. So that requires grooming. That requires the manipulation of people, the unknowing manipulation of people around them. Um, so one example of that that I've come across is uh, a couple where the boyfriend was abusing the girlfriend and um, at that stage, the church recognised that there was a relational breakdown, but they didn't know what name to give it. Um, and there was a high level of distress involved in, in the relationship. And the minister thought that he was serving the girlfriend who was distressed by passing on messages from the boyfriend to the girlfriend. 
In fact, what he was doing was passing on coded threats from the boyfriend to the girlfriend that made her feel more more afraid, um, more like this man had access to her life that she was trying to limit. The minister didn't know that. He thought yeah. he was just enabling good communication between sure. people who'd had a relationship breakdown. Mm. He, you know, he was acting with all good intentions, but he didn't realise that he was being co-opted by this person to continue the abuse when the person didn't have as much access to the to the ex-girlfriend. So I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's that's yeah. one of the ways that happens. And to be honest, I've I've um, over time realised that I've been groomed by abusive people in the church, which is really scary. You know, like I have a fair amount of awareness about these sorts of things, um, but I've had people who um, told me how much they respected me and been really warm towards me and have um, wanted to be involved in key ministries and have done a really good job in the way that they've served and all of those things have predisposed me towards them, have made me like and respect and trust them. Um, and it's only been later on that I found out that they were operating in an abusive way towards their partner. Um, so it can happen to all of us, which is yeah. a scary thing, but also um, I guess just something to be sober-minded about to recognise that that is that's yeah. a possibility at the yeah. very least. I appreciate you saying that. And I'd be keen to know what um, what are par- patterns of abuse, potentially emotional abuse or things that just we wouldn't it wouldn't be on our radar, but that you see are prevalent within the church? Because I think that, you know, in terms of we, we need to educate ourselves and, and you yourself saying that, you know, I, I, I wasn't able to see this. Um, what are some of those telltale patterns that you see that are things that, you know, would raise red flags for women within the church that may not even know or think that this is abuse or um, or even for us men to be looking out for the people that are grooming? What are things that we can be doing and looking for um, specifically uh, that would probably go under the radar otherwise? It's a great question. Um, I guess one of them would be, do you have, is there an imbalance in the kind of access to relationship? Um, that if you're thinking about a romantic partner, say a husband and wife, does the husband have more access to the leadership than the wife does, even if it's just relational leadership or relational access? So does the husband go out for beers with the minister once a month and the wife stays home and perhaps looks after the children? Um, Is he the one who tells the stories about the relationship and shapes uh, people's perspectives on them. So hmm. my wife is just really shy or mm. um, she's really anxious and that's why she's not here tonight. Do you ever hear her voice and do you ever hear it independently from him? Um, that shows up in a number of ways, you know, yeah, if she's not a Bible imagine. study or if she's not on a Sunday or um, even just like a husband might um, under the guise of, sharing vulnerably about marriage difficulties will say oh my wife just she's in a really low place mentally and she's not really on top of things in the home um and that will garner sympathy for him probably and it'll look like it's garnering sympathy for her but actually it's developing a narrative that um that means that people are more likely to use him as a channel of communication than to go directly to her and talk to her Um, or trust her 
Um, and if he is gaslighting her, which I've heard the stories of many times, wives who have been told by their husbands that they must be mentally ill and that's why things are not operating well in the house um, or in their relationship, um, then most people, because they're sensitive to those sorts of things, aren't actually going to ask her direct questions. Um, does that make any sense? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and how unbelievably subtle that can be. Yeah. Like, that can be yeah. truth in some of that. But if you're not providing the woman voice or a, or a narrative and you're shaping that at all times, that's yeah. really interesting. Yeah. So I knew a wife whose husband uh, booked her in to see a counsellor and anyone else would think, wow, what a loving husband that he is taking into consideration her needs and the fact that she's struggling with her mental health and he just really wants to support her in this and make sure she gets the help that she needs. Actually, what he was doing was engineering it so that it looked like she was incapable of looking after the children so that if she left him, she wouldn't have the access to the custody of the children. Yeah. Um, it was, it's like devious, <laughs> the yeah. kind of cleverness and the subtlety of that. Um, but that's often what it is. So the, why that's difficult is because it's subtle. But if you can be thinking about is there an imbalance in terms of access, perspective, involvement, those sorts of things, that's really helpful to notice. Now, that's really tricky if you're in a church where some of that imbalance is enshrined so if you've only got male staff, for example, and they think it's their major, that they kind of exercise their role best by channeling their pastoral care and discipleship through the guys specifically, then actually you're going to create blind spots in your church. So if the male ministers don't think that they have as equal a responsibility to disciple and care for the women as kind of independent um, disciples of Jesus... Um, then you're likely to create those sorts of, or you're likely to miss the sorts of things that might help you to notice that the abuse is happening. Of course. Yeah. Wow. Thank you very much. That was all um, you know, very heavy. We just dove straight in, Erica. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm feeling the weight and the burden and the yeah. heaviness of something yeah. that you experience um, day and yeah. night. So thank you for that. Um, love to kind of turn a, a page slightly in mm. whatever remaining time we have together. I'd be curious to hear, um, I heard law in the background mm. and now you're in ministry. So obviously <laughs> there was a crossroad and a divergence uh, in your journey. Can you tell yeah. me a little bit about that uh, and maybe how long you've been in ministry? So your, your gateway and your kind of fork in the road um, process. Yeah, I guess it wasn't just a crossroad. It was a cross in my road. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I became a Christian when I was at university and um, I'd gone to university planning to be a human rights lawyer, I think because I had a God-given sense that there, that justice matters and that um, mercy matters and that God wants us to act as channels for that in the world. Um, I didn't even know, like I was a God-fearer, I guess, before I was a Christian. I didn't know the God of the Bible, but that was the conviction that I had. And then I think what I discovered when I was studying university was that um, that, like I said, that law is an approximation of justice, but it's not the fullness of it, and that there's so much outside of what a bare legal system can do that um, a person who's seeking justice needs. Um, they need not just for the judge to, like, 
you know, pass the gavel in their favour. Um, they need people to support them and love them and they need cultures to be changed and they need all sorts of other things. And so I, I consider law to be enormously important and I think it's such a great um, industry for someone to be in. But as I developed in my own faith and conviction, I started to find myself more drawn to the kind of extra legal stuff rather than law itself. Um, and that was part of what led me to the ministry, just wanting to see the gospel applied um, in those areas and to see it produce the kind of change that um, God says that it does. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so that kind of, I sort of found myself finishing my law degree and feeling like I had a few different options to work through and I got encouraged to do a ministry traineeship on campus with an AFES group and I thought I should do that first before I learn, earn any real money <laughs> um, because if I'm earning real money it would be hard for me to consider ministry um, without that kind of weighing too heavily on me. Um, and so I thought I would do a legal traineeship at some point and kind of then weigh them up at the end but I was probably only six weeks into the ministry traineeship and I just thought I don't understand how I get to do this full time like this is ridiculous that mm. this is um, the what were those bits early on, if you don't mind? What were those bits early on that were, um, you know, uh, faith-inducing, fruit-providing? Like, what was that that was that catalyst or that spark that, you know, made you say, I get to do this? I think it was that I got to spend all of my time learning about God, teaching other people about God, walking alongside people and um, telling people about Jesus who hadn't heard about it before. And those are the three things that kind of set me alive. God, people, evangelism are just, um, they yeah, fill my heart with joy. <laughs> um, I'm going to cry because I just, um, yeah, it's, a, it's an enormous privilege to be able to do that. I think particularly because I didn't grow up a Christian, um, that never, it never feels like a given. I, I don't take for granted the privilege of being someone who knows Jesus and of being able to help someone else know Jesus because uh, I truly believe he's the only hope <laughs> for the world. So I just think stuff like that, like you just sit yeah. there and you think, wow, I get to focus my time on that. I'm not... Um, I'm not having to juggle that with other things, although I have a deep admiration for people who do that. Um, but to be able to give my whole time to that and all of my energy to that just felt amazing. Yeah. yeah. I think um, uh, just to give you a moment as well, but one of the things <laughs> that I reflect on is um, sometimes people outside of the church will say, look, why isn't the church going after these major systems or structures or putting things in place Um and, and what I'm going to counter with that is saying that what the beautiful part of what I've seen by that is that when Jesus frees one person, the multiplication process out of that and the huge redemptive story that that is and how important in shaping that is that God is after each human heart as opposed to the KPIs or the big metrics or the big system or the big all of that. There's such immense beauty when you see one person's life transformed. And I, I, I believe that's what brought you to tears in that moment. I'm not saying don't go after the big things or don't do the systems. Um, but I think as, as a Christian myself, that's been one of the things that I've looked at. So my father will say, oh, that's a good Christian thing to do. 
And then I think to myself, what does that mean? Mm. And actually, you know, and he's talking about social justice. He's talking about things that are very worthwhile, relevant. And I believe that the church could and should absolutely be maxing out on. But there is something missing in the um, the micro aspect of one life being transformed and the multiplication out of that and the beauty and the flourishing that happens at that level. Mm. And to see those things as really integrally connected, you know, one of my favorite incidents from Jesus's life and ministry is when he heals the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. And the way that story is told, uh, you don't just marvel at the fact that Jesus has done this for this woman. What you also see is that um, Luke is pairing Jairus, the guy whose daughter is dying, who's super well-connected, super powerful. He's known, he's a public figure. He's being paired with this woman who is completely anonymous, who's ritually unclean, who's been ostracised because of the bleeding for 12 years um, and who comes to Jesus privately and both of them fall at his feet. So there's a sense in which actually, yes, we're hearing the story of individuals, but we're hearing we're seeing a structure be reoriented because the powerful is brought, is humbled. And what happens with the woman is she's lifted up by Jesus. So there's actually a reversal of the status quo. It is systemic on one level because she's being commended and she is like the example of faith, not just for Jairus, but for anyone who's observing this. So there's a, there's a broad systemic kind of uh, reversal of things, just like is foretold about Jesus' ministry in Luke 1 but it's through individuals as well. It's not one or the other. And I think that's what I find really, really significant about that. It's never an either or choice or it doesn't have to be if Jesus is involved. Exactly. But I think uh, the reason why I was just musing on that and saying that is because we even 2000 years later, 20 years later, we still marvel, right, at the system. We still marvel at the big and we kind of forget. Yeah, the, the, we forget the, the one, the one person. The one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think, sorry, that's actually so at the heart of what you're doing as well and the ability to sit and be patient um, in that timeline of sanctification. Um, in our last couple of minutes, I would be curious to know, we do have a couple of um, different women and specifically roles within the church. And I know that there's going to be different perspectives on that. And I know there's going to be um, just a multitude of stories of um, mm. things that have been helpful, excuse me, and things that have been unhelpful. But I really am in this stage of my maturation and growth and, and all of that, um, wanting to see women flourish, wanting to understand more of those issues and also bringing to light what hasn't been helpful. So just maybe some of the things, um, if you can speak to, you've been in ministry how long now? Oh, um, 13 years, 14 years. 13. No. Yeah, okay, it's quite a big chunk of your life <laughs> no. dedicated to the church. Praise God yeah. for that. Um, yeah. But maybe, you know, things that maybe you felt sidelined or siloed or silenced even. Um, I've heard those terms being used a lot and mm -hmm. or times of elevation, times of lifting up, times where, you know what, I think um, our pastors, our community, whoever has gotten that right. And again, to the best of your ability without using names, um, any kind of situational scenarios that would be helpful for mm -hmm. us to hear. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you got another hour. hour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have actually spoken about this in a in a talk that we did at my church on one Timothy two. So if people do want to look into that, there's a section there where I talk about it. But I guess um, where I felt silenced or sidelined 
I guess has been where it sort of felt like I have been limited because of my gender. Um, and I don't mean that as a critique of certain convictions about the place of women in the church. I mean that it seeps out in different ways. So often when I get introduced to new people at Barney's, even though I've just named you that I oversee about seven different ministries there, I get called the women's minister um, and that's it. Um, and there's nothing wrong with being a women's minister, but that is not my role <laughs> um, or it's not the only part of my role. Um, or if I go to a ministry conference and I say that I'm a minister, people will say, oh, like a worship worship leader. <laughs> they don't have a place in their mind for what it would look like for me to occupy the sort of role that I do in the church um, using the gifts that God's given me. Um, so that's, that's one of the ways, I guess, that it sort of feels like you're being uh, put in a box that says, well, if you deal with things, maybe if you're specifically talking about ovaries, we've got a place for you, but if not... Um, it's, it's a way of framing discipleship that's fairly limiting, that has yeah. the picture of um, a woman at the centre rather than Jesus at the centre. If Jesus is at the centre, then my discipleship gets to cover all range of things. Hmm. But if, if it's womanhood at the centre, then that becomes a, a, a narrower focus and a narrower purview. Can you, um, sorry, can I pause and stop you right there in terms yeah. of, I just want to catch up. I, I'm curious yeah. to know what you mean by that. Because um, what I heard was there are either a lack of categories. So someone might ignorantly just, they might be doing it, uh, you know, on their bias and their predisposition, but they might be just not having a category for what it is that you do. And then you said something about Christ being at the center of your discipleship. And, and I want to know what you mean by that. Yeah, I guess like, am I seeking to become more like Jesus in my own life? And do I consider my role at, fundamentally at its basis level to help other people become more like Jesus I think that is the call for all Christians which means that I have something to say about that if I'm following Jesus yes. and I have something to say to both men and women about it yeah. something that I can model for both men and women about that um, and that both men and women can model to me about it whereas I think what can happen is we have we centralize the womanhood or the manhood part of things and peripheralize what is universal about following Jesus. Um, and so what that tends to mean is that there's kind of a womanly way to be a Christian, um, which does tend to be defined in relatively narrow terms, which borrow a lot from the culture of its time. Um, whereas I think actually if, if we're saying actually we're being made into the image of Jesus, then um, each of us has something to say and something to offer about that. Yeah. I don't know if that helps articulate it any better than what I did before. but it's beautiful. No, thank you. I'd, I'd say that's helpful for me. Um, yeah, and I think even just what I've observed and what I've tried to make really clear when I talk about this in the past has been um, that often the way that we talk about gender issues in the church divide over things like complementarianism and egalitarianism whether you believe that there are specific roles that women are prohibited from within the church or that there are no roles that women are prohibited from. But what I would love for people to understand more is that if we live in a broken world, that brokenness will represent itself in gendered terms, no matter what your formal position is. And so I've been talked over in staff meetings by people who are egalitarian and want to be the world's best advocate for women, and they've still dismissed me in a staff meeting. Um, and I've also been silenced or dismissed by people who hold to complementarian theology. 
the enemy is sexism. <laughs> it's not yes. conviction. Um, well, and, and I believe that the enemy is the powers behind sexism that would seek to distort and divide us, right? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a deeper way to say it. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I guess, like, that's been the thing that has been... Um, that's that is sad about that because you can find it in what, whatever camp you're in. But uh, the hopeful side of that is that if we can identify that we have a common enemy in that sense, there's lots of room for collaboration and for friendship where we address that together. To say Jesus doesn't require this of us because of our convictions. This is not necessary. Um, yeah. So anyway, you're getting my sermon on that now. Um, I guess the positive the positive side of it has been. Um, men who do what I've just advocated doing for people who've experienced abuse but for women. So, and I will use a name here because you know him and he'll be people that your audience know. Andy Judd was a great ally in that regard, um, lecturer at Ridley College, um, adjunct minister of City on a Hill, I guess. Um, I worked with him here in Barney's for a number of years and sometimes if I was getting talked over in a meeting he would say I just want to hear Erica finish her sentence there or can we go back to what Erica was saying because I think that got missed um that that feels like a small thing it's only one yeah. sentence but it was enormous for me because it actually enabled me to have a voice um and it changed the culture in such a way that I, he didn't need to do that as much for me um, anymore because people actually just start to listen. So I think that's part of it. That's I beautiful. Think part of it. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, no, and it's so interesting how advocacy can be such a small gesture and yet brings about so much freedom or so it can be so brave and yet so subtle. Um, so thank you yeah. for saying that. Yeah. And if I can, if I can just give props to my boss, <laughs> um, Michael Paget, who's the senior minister here at Barney's, he has said to me on a number of occasions, I think my role is to give you a platform and to make sure you're able to um, use your gifts the way God intends. And that's been a profoundly encouraging thing just to even hear as a person in ministry. Um, but for that to be his attitude has been so freeing because it means that um, I feel totally backed by someone and um, like they understand their role is to serve and enable me rather than, um, I guess, <laughs> carve out the limits of what I'm doing, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So that's been beautiful. There are lots of other examples I could offer, but I think that kind of friendship and partnership in the gospel is probably the best thing to, to focus on. Yeah. And that's worked out relationally, right? Like yeah, that is worked out in the midst of the highs and lows of life. And yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that, Erica. Um, just in closing, is there anything you'd like to plug, um, whether through your church or? Um... I guess I would just, I would encourage people to check out Common Grace. We have a bunch of resources that are intended to help churches and Christians, no matter where they are in, in dealing with domestic and family violence. And we've got a number of projects that are going to be coming out in the, in the next year, which we are hoping to continue with a focus on um, healing and help for people who have escaped abuse. Um, so those are not out yet. They're long-term projects, but they will be out soon. Uh, but in the meantime, Safer Resource is a really good place to start if people do want to learn more about that. 
Wonderful. That was so helpful. Thank you so much for your time. God bless you, sister. You're um, a blessing to the kingdom and in local context uh, to our communities as well. So thank you for the time today. Thank you. Thanks for yours. It's great. Take care. Hey, friends. Thanks so much for listening today. If you found this episode helpful, please do share it with a friend. We want others to uh, embrace this unscripted life, this uh, life apart from promotion or perfection, but honesty and purity and love. So until we catch up again, let's consider how we may spur each other on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, but encouraging each other as we see the day approaching. Love you guys. Peace.